Well, good morning, Moraine Valley Church. How are you holding up today? Doing okay? Enjoying uh, the uh, spring-like weather? No 90s today? No high humidity? It's good, isn't it, to have that little break from the heat, a little respite? I like that. Can I just tell you, you guys look marvelous? You really do. Sight is such a good thing to have. You like my new glasses? I found things looked a little fuzzy. I felt like that guy that uh, he saw people, but they looked like trees. You know, so visited the eye doctor recently, and they, uh, I went from just cheaters to read to something that I can actually see distance and up close and I can actually read my notes by just looking down today. That's a very good thing. I appreciate sight. How about you? What did you see when you came in today? Pardon? Okay, a lot of different things. You got good observation skills? Could you be a detective? Some make that a career, you know where they uh, observe what's going on around them and they're, they're dependent upon that. And so I, I, what we see makes a difference. And I was just wondering, for you, how is life in your world today? What do you see taking place in your life particularly? Are you doing well? You know, part of what I want to do this morning is just take a real-time walk with Jesus through a couple of passages of Scripture and see what he saw. I wonder what it's like for you when you go to a concert. What do you see when you go to a concert? You might see lighting, you might see the staging, you might see the band on the stage, you might see a bunch of people gathered together, you might be in a crowd. What do you see when you go to a sporting event? Uh, maybe you see people just like you. If you're a uh, Chicagoan, you're torn between two teams, most likely, if in the summertime at least, uh, the Cubs and the Sox. And so you look around and you see people that are just kind of like you and they're rooting hard for the team and they rejoice when the W flies and they lament when the L goes up. So what do you see? Or maybe you go to a family gathering and it's a gathering of people that you may not have seen for a long time. Now what do you see when you go there? Do you see people that you want to connect with? Do you see people that you've seen in the distant past? And you don't know what's going on in their lives and you need to have that time just to connect with them and see how they're doing. Or maybe you go shopping or maybe you go to dinner or maybe you come into this place that we call church and you see people. You know, Jesus, he saw people too. Have you ever wondered what it was like for Jesus when he saw people? What if he was with you where you physically went, wherever that is, and he saw the people that you see? What do you think he'd see? What do you see when you see people? 
When you see crowds of people, what do you see? I wonder what it would like, be like for you and me if we could see with the eyes of Jesus for just one day. What would it be like? Would it be different for you, do you think? Would it be different for me when I look at people and when I see them? When I look at a crowd, do I just see a vast sea of people? You know, I was, when I was coming in this morning, I was recalling when Franklin Graham was in town uh, last fall. And there was a sea of people there. Right, Wally? A sea of people. And they came for some reason, but we couldn't tell what their needs were. And it was interesting to me that when Franklin simply shared the gospel, it was like the seats of the people were spring-loaded and they popped out of their seats to trust Jesus. Well, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. I got I to gotta tell you, the guy that was sitting in front of me, I had no idea what was going on in his life. But when he had the opportunity to respond to Jesus and to the work that the Holy Spirit was going to do in making him a brand new person, he popped right out of his seat. That's the power of the gospel. Now, obviously, if Jesus were walking with you and me and seeing people, we'd be at somewhat of a disadvantage because we don't have his eyes. He would have a greater advantage over us in that he sees people differently. So what I want to do this morning is I want to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to take a look at what Jesus saw, what he felt when he saw what he saw, what he did to impact those that he saw, and then what that will mean for you and me. So be looking for that. So let me, let me give us the setting. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 34. And we're going to do a real-time walk with Jesus just walking along the way. He has been talking to John's disciples, and they've had a question about fasting. Why is it that your disciples don't fast, but the Pharisees and we, the disciples of John, are fasting. And Jesus talks to them about, well, when the bridegroom is present, the attendants don't fast. But when the bridegroom is gone, then the time for fasting will come. So it wouldn't be appropriate to fast right then. And it's while he's saying these things to John's disciples that this begins to take place. Yet verse 18... It says, while he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died. That's a devastating thing. Here Jesus is, and a synagogue official comes to him and declares that his daughter has just died. But then listen to what he says. But come and lay your hand on her and what? She will live. My daughter will live. There is a confident man. There's a man 
filled with faith that Jesus, if you just come to my home and lay your hand on my daughter, she'll live. The greatest obstacle that men and women face today is that obstacle of death, that that looms before us. And here this man is coming to Jesus and saying, my daughter's died, but if you show up, she'll live. Can I just tell you that that's true? Jesus, by virtue of who he is being God, is not only the one who can bring someone back from the dead, but he's the very author of life itself. And Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. His disciples, Methetes, his followers, the ones that were learning from him, they began to follow with him as he's now on the synagogue officials, to the synagogue officials' home. So Jesus wasn't put off by this guy coming and saying, my daughter's died. Instead, he was responsive to this guy's plea for you to please come to my home and make my daughter live. So Jesus begins to follow him, his disciples with them, and a woman who has been suffering from a hemorrhage, an issue of blood, the scripture calls it, for 12 years a long-term illness. Anybody ever have to walk through that? Anybody you know that's walked through a long-term illness and struggled through that? You know them, don't you? Uh, Maybe you've been one of those, and here you are today. A long-term illness, 12 years. She comes up behind Jesus and touches the fringe of his cloak. Now, what motivated her for doing that? Look at the next verse. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. In other words, if I can only get close to Jesus, he can change my situation. I can go from having this long-term illness to being made well. Listen to Jesus' response. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once, the woman was made well. Well, that's a miracle, isn't it? You know, Jesus, in another one of the Gospels, that he said he was aware that power had gone out from him. This woman just touched the hem of his garment. Jesus is not reluctant to bring healing. It's in his power to do it. When Jesus came out, Now, Jesus and his disciples and this synagogue official keep moving on towards his house. And when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, they're lamenting, they're mourning the loss of a daughter. 
And Jesus enters this situation. He said, leave, for the girl has not died, is but asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, this crowd of people that Jesus entered into, when they'd been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand and the girl got up. Well, isn't that amazing? He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything extraordinary. He just simply reached down, took her by the hand, and she comes to life and gets up. Can you imagine being in that crowd of people? Can you imagine being that synagogue official who knew his, his daughter was dead, but he just saw Jesus take his hand, put it in hers, and raise her up from the dead? This news spread throughout all the land of what Jesus had done. He just brought life back into the body of this young girl who had died at home and he did it in front of the synagogue official and his disciples. As Jesus went out from there, the next verse, verse 27, Jesus went on from there. Two blind men followed him crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. That's all they said. Yes, Lord. We believe that you're able to do this. They said, then he touched their eyes. He places his hand on their eyes. He said, it shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this. I want to tell you something this morning. When you leave here, I want you to not tell anybody about how great Jesus is. Do you know what these guys did? They didn't listen to that. They didn't listen to that. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. So do me a favor this morning. Just keep it to yourself. Can't do it, can you? If your life has been changed like this, I got to tell you, you're just fuzzy. But now I can see you. Can you imagine being blind? 
and suddenly your sight is restored, you're going to keep that to yourself. You're going to say, man, I don't know how that happened. All I know is he laid his hands on my eyes. My eyes were open. And now I can see. How did he do that? And the news about him spread throughout all that land. Now as they're going out, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, we're not even told that they asked him to do it. But after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds, the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. How in the world did that happen? A demon-possessed guy, mute, could not speak. And he was able to speak now. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were saying he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Now Jesus doesn't respond to that at all here. But the next verse says this. The next verse simply says this. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. That is authority and that is power. Authority is the right to rule. Power is the ability to make things different. And Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Don't you wonder why he was doing that? You know, everything that he was doing here wasn't arbitrary, it wasn't happenstance. It was he was demonstrating his messiahship and that he is the messiah. You know who his cousin was? John the Baptist, right? His cousin John. John's in prison. John's going to send his disciples to Jesus because John wants to know, are you the expected one? Now, John's the forerunner. But he's in a desperate spot. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, are you the expected one? Listen to Jesus' response to John's question. Jesus answered and said to them, this is in Matthew 11, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, 
And then he says this, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. In other words, John, I'm the one. Not just words, but in action. Not just action, but power. And not just power, but full authority, the right to rule over all of his creation. You know, every one of these people came to Jesus were in a desperate place. And maybe you're in a desperate place today. I don't know. I only know about you, what you might reveal to me. But Jesus knows everything there is to know about you. Because there's nothing hidden from his sight. It's all laid open and bare before him. Everything that has to do with us is obvious to him. He sees differently than we see. He knows deep things. He knows the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts this morning. And Jesus was going throughout all the villages and cities and he's teaching in their synagogues and he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and he's healing all these sicknesses and diseases, every kind of them. Nothing that he's not able to do. And then verses 36 through 38, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. I want you to take a look at that. Now, as we come to this, I want you to see if you can see what Jesus saw. I want you to see if you uh, can see why he felt the way that he did. And then if you can see what that prompted him to do. Verses 36 through 38, it says, in some translations, it says, seeing the crowds or the multitudes in the New American Standard that I'm reading from, it says, seeing the people. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Seeing the people, seeing the people, seeing the crowds, seeing the people. What do you see when you look at a crowd? Do you just see a vast sea of humanity? Or do you see people that are walking through life similar to what you're walking through, maybe rejoicing, maybe facing real difficulty, maybe having experienced the loss of a loved one? I just talked to someone this morning who had a relative die just yesterday morning. That's a heartbreaking thing. That can be devastating. The good news is the person knew Jesus. So they're in the presence of Jesus today. But it's a very hard spot for the family to be. And Jesus seeing the people, it says he felt compassion for them. It's an interesting word for compassion here. I'm going to slaughter it, but I'm going to try it anyhow. Splanka, splantna. It means to have this deep down guttural response, a feeling of pain from compassion that leads into action. Jesus, seeing the people, 
feels this deep down guttural sense of painful feeling. It's in the bowels. You ever have that? When you, you get really bad news or you experience something devastating, you get this deep down gut feeling inside of you. It's a pain. It says, it's not one of those, well, I feel for you, I just can't reach you. This is one of those, I feel so bad about this, I have such compassion, I've got to take steps to make this different. That's what it's talking about here. When Jesus looked at the people and he saw them, he felt compassion for them. Jesus has a leg up on us because his eyes see things differently. Mine don't see that way. I need the Holy Spirit to open my eyes to be able to see that way and respond this way. It's just not intrinsic in me. That's a spiritual work that the Holy Spirit has to do. And why did he feel that kind of compassion? The word because. Because they were distressed. Skulo. The root meaning flayed or skinned. To be flayed. I, I had to get the definition of that this morning. It's not a pretty definition. It means to be skinned alive. It was used, that was used as a, a long, slow, painful process of torture. He saw the people. And how did he see them? They were distressed. They were severely troubled. They were harassed. It often meant to be battered, bruised, ripped apart, worn out, exhausted. Exhausted is the least of these words. Can you imagine Jesus looking at a group? I wonder what he would see if he looked at this group of people today. What would he see if he was physically in our presence How's life in your world? Oh, you may tell me it's great. Oh, what would Jesus see if he asked you, how's life in your world? Would your response be different? Would he see something different? He said they were distressed and dispirited, basically meaning thrown down, prostrate and utterly helpless as from drunkenness or a mortal wound. One of the things that the scripture, uh, or one of the commentaries said was that when Jesus saw these people as distressed and dispirited to be dispirited, there's a picture in the Old Testament of someone being killed in a tent with a tent peg driven through their head, nailing them to the ground. That's what this means. That kind of desperate, desperate condition. 
And he said that not only did he see them as distressed and dispirited, but he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep with no shepherd. You know what sheep will do with no shepherd, right? They get in all kinds of trouble. They wander away. They put themselves in harm's way. They need someone who is going to look out for them and guard them and protect their very lives to be able to anoint them, to bring healing to them when it's needed and so on. In Ezekiel 34, verses 2 through 6, this is, this is something that uh, is recorded in Ezekiel. It was an indictment against the shepherds of the flock of God in that day. It says that they were, the indictment was that they were not feeding the sheep, the sickly were not strengthened, the diseased were not healed, the broken were not bound up, the scattered were not brought back, and they have not sought for the lost, and with force and severity, these shepherds of God's flock had dominated his people. They were sheep without a shepherd. The shepherds were taking care of themselves and not the flock of God. And this is how Jesus, looking at this crowd, this vast crowd of people, the multitudes, not just a person here and there, but as he looked at them, he saw not only were they in those distressful kinds of situations that Jesus encountered as he's walking through the villages and the cities, but he saw them as having no spiritual hope. The scripture says today that people that do not know God are without God and without hope in the world. That's what's here. That's what's here. These are people who are like sheep without a shepherd. They're having things. The Pharisees were doing this. It says this, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, the Pharisees had laid heavy loads on men's shoulders and they themselves were unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They weren't willing to come alongside. They laid heavy burdens on the shoulders of men, heavy weights, spiritually heavy weights that people could not bear up under and they found it to be an impossibility and there was nothing done to remove that weight. Enter Jesus. And he steps onto the scene and he's operating in a completely different way. And now we get to verse 37. Then Jesus says, then he said to his disciples, he says to his disciples. Now, you know what a disciple is, right? We've defined that here several different times. A disciple is one who follows Jesus and impacts others. It's a person who is a follower, a mathetes, a learner from Jesus with the purpose of impacting others. Now, I wonder, are I just want to wonder this today. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus? Is it your heart's desire to impact others? Now, if you know Jesus, you say that 
is what I want to do. And that's what Jesus is in the process of doing in your life and in mine to make us greater followers of him. And then he, here's what he says to his disciples. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful. There's this big harvest, but the workers are few. Now, there are several different interpretations offered for the meaning of the harvest. Uh, some interpret it as all the lost. Others interpret it as seekers after God. That's the harvest. Others would say the harvest is the elect. And then others, the, the harvest is the coming judgment, where the angels put in the sickle and they harvest the ripe grapes and they put them in the, uh, uh, the vat and the wrath of God. They tread the wrath of God. and Right? So I'm not going to answer which one that is for you today. All I'm going to say to you is the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. Now whatever that harvest is, the bottom line is that there is a warning that needs to go out in the midst of the harvest. And there's an offer that needs to be made in the midst of that harvest. Maybe you're like me. You say, I'm just one guy, I'm just one gal. How in the world can this happen? How in the world will that ever happen? How will that warning ever get out? How will that harvest ever be brought in? How in the world is that going to happen? Verse 38. Before we get into verse 38, you know, when you hear the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, what does that prompt in your own heart? What does it prompt in you? I got to go do something, right? <laughs> I better go out to the harvest field. I better go do this. I better go do that. Listen, listen to what Jesus says. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Beseech. To beseech. It means to ask someone urgently and fervently to do something, to implore or entreat. What's Jesus telling his disciples? If you've identified yourself as a disciple today, what is he saying to you and me to do? I actually understood this when I read it. It's not hard, is it? He didn't tell them, guys, you better get at it. You better go out there now and get engaged in that harvest. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to implore the one who owns the field to send out workers or to raise up workers, right? Isn't that what it says? Send out workers 
into his harvest field. So here's what he would be saying to you and me today. Knowing that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, to beseech, to implore the Lord of the harvest to send out the workers, to raise them up, to send them out, to get them into the harvest field. Now, I was, I was here yesterday for a memorial service. And there was something I heard about the person that was uh, being remembered. That she was a behind-the-scenes kind of person. She wasn't out there doing a lot of things, but she was on her knees fervently praying for her family. Can I tell you, don't miss the harvest field right in front of you. Your family. You know, Jesus said this. He told his disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he said, but when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll receive power. And you'll be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, remotest part of the world. For me, my Jerusalem is my family. For me, my Judea, my extended family. My Samaria, hey, might be second, third cousins, I don't know. Friends, family, you know, friends, near, near friends. Remotest part of the world could be some dude I meet on the street. Don't miss what God's doing right in front of you in your Jerusalem. Obviously, Jesus was thinking much bigger. He was thinking towns and villages and states and nations and everything else, the very remotest part of the world. But here, what Jesus is saying to his disciples, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest fervently, urgently. Why? We're approaching those very last days, aren't we? Who do you entreat? The Lord of the harvest, the one who owns the fields, the one who has authority over it because he has created all things and you and I have been created by him and for him for his good pleasure. What purpose is Jesus calling his disciples to do this? to extend a warning, to beseech those who are far from God to turn to God from their sin. Perhaps this is you this morning. You know, I asked the question, do you consider yourself to be a disciple of Jesus? A disciple of Jesus is someone who has come to faith in him through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, and they've experienced that transformed life by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. If that's not you this morning, then the gospel is for you this morning. If you're not a disciple, this is the good news. This is the warning. This is the information. This is the call to people. The scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of those things is death. But the free gift 
The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The scripture says God demonstrated that own, his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, it was then that Christ died for us. In John it says as many as received him, received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God. To receive him is to believe on him. To believe that he, that he was crucified, that he went to the grave, that he rose from the dead. And by virtue of confidence in who he is and what he's done, that person is born again to a living hope in Jesus Christ. John 5, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, doesn't come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. That's a free gift. So what does this mean for you and me today? What does this mean? We can't stop at verse 38. We got to go into Matthew chapter 10. Once we begin to understand how bad it is for people around us without God, without hope in the world, we begin to take and we begin to say, Lord, I want to pray for those people. I want to see like you see. I want to make myself available to you. Jesus calls his guys together, calls the 12 together, Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. We're going to look at verse 1 and verse 5. Listen to what it says. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Jesus gives his disciples authority. I just wonder... Are we as disciples today? If we are, then we walk in that authority today, the same authority that Jesus had. He has authority, and he shares it with those who are his. So what do we do first? We don't go run out. We begin to pray. We begin to ask God, what would you have me do? Would you raise up workers for your harvest field? And then what? We go. Jesus was walking through the streets with the people and seeing what was going on in their lives, listening to them, making himself available to them. And he was observing what was happening in their lives. He was listening to them. He was serving, he was serving them. He was speaking the good news and things began to change. And it's the same for you and me. As we walk with him, as we pray, then there's that time that he says, let's go, and we go out and we observe. We get eyes on it. We see. We ask the Lord, would you show me? Would you enable me to see as you see? We listen to people around us. We look for places to serve. And then there's that opportunity that comes to speak the good news into their lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, it says, uh, yeah, let me get to it. I want to read the whole passage.
says this, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You and I, ambassadors for Jesus. Why? Because God is making an appeal through men and women, boys and girls, through us. We're his ambassadors. We're the ones with the boots on the ground. We're the ones that he would use to make a difference in the lives of people, to see them go from being dead in their trespasses and sins to being made alive in Christ, to bring in the harvest, to see people become reconciled to God. That's available to people through the gospel. But the harvest is plentiful, and the workers are few. The one who knew no sin became sin for you and me so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Now I've got a question for us. Do you identify yourself? Do we identify ourselves as his disciples today? Do you do that? Yes? Okay. And I want to ask you to do something. I'm a disciple of his too. I'm already standing. I'm just going to ask you to stand with me if you're his disciple. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning so that I can pray for you. Because God is taking us to a world that's in desperate need. The harvest is plentiful. You know some of them. There's others that God is going to bring along your path. We don't know who they are, and we need to be able to see as Jesus sees. So I just want to commission us today to be involved in that great harvest. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, we stand before you today recognizing that uh, who we are in light of who Jesus is in our lives. He's the one who gave himself for us so that we could have forgiveness of sin, peace with you, eternal life as a free gift, not to just simply enjoy that ourselves, but be ambassadors, those who represent your kingdom to a lost and dying world. Lord, we see people day by day that have no concept that they're even lost, that they're dead in their trespasses and sins. And you've, uh, you've ordained it, Lord, that we rub shoulders with family members and friends and acquaintances that have no knowledge of you, but you are alive in us and you desire to put yourself on display with them through us so that they might have that living hope that we have today. Lord, we just want to respond to your call for workers, for your harvest field. Would you employ us in seeking you, beseeching you to raise up even more workers 
in these days for your harvest field? Would you put yourself on display through your authority and your power so that men and women, boys and girls, may turn to you from their deadness and sin and receive new life because of who you are and what you've done, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.